In Vita Rex, Chapter 7. Of all the great noble houses, none is so openly hostile to the public as that of the Wild Clan. The Wilds own more property than any other two houses combined. Occasionally, a new scion will make a foray into business, selling off land for influence, but those attempts have never ended well. The most successful of the Wilds have been those who stayed with the family, using rental income to purchase more land and build upon the largest agricultural center in the Americas. Little is known of the Wilds, which is not entirely accidental. They are rarely seen in public, choosing instead to engage in pursuits on their own land. When a Wild is in attendance, it is generally known that the press will be forbidden. In 2277, Warren Wilde attended Texas A&M in pursuit of his bachelor's in plant and soil sciences. His father was embroiled in an unpopular war in Venezuela, and the young Warren found himself harried by local college station press. In response, the student declared that no members of the press will be allowed on school grounds. The university threatened suit until it was realized that the Wilde family owned all of the land leased by the university. Young Wilde declared that he would use his power as a landowner to change the lease and evict the university if they did not accede to his demands. This became a larger political issue than his father's war, but no one could report on it for fear of prosecution. In the end, the Texas State Supreme Court upheld Wilde's interpretation of the lease, and the university barred all press. This marks the first time in the university's history that the battalion, the school newspaper, was shut down. While the story seemed excessive at the time, the lack of any judicial restraint served as a sobering lesson to the rest of the world. After that, the press took a careful view of any story that had ties to the Wilde family for fear of being battalioned. At the same time, editorials regarding the Wilds flourished. Many news outlets were owned by the Atherton family, who had the finances and power necessary to fight the Wilds on their own ground. After an Atherton newsie took the Wilds to task for their censorship, the Wilds threatened to evict the newsie from its lot. The Atherton family relocated the Newsy headquarters while making the argument to the Supreme Court that a news corporation had a First Amendment right of personhood. The legal battles were long and costly and ended with a stalemate of sorts. The news organizations backed away from covering the wilds while the editorials continued their full-throated recrimination of the family. This stalemate came to a head during the reign of the Weaver King when the Atherton presses made the allegation that Lord Wilde, who was an avid hunter, falconer, and veterinarian, was engaging in bestiality. The stain of this allegation hurt his only daughter socially and forced the family into further seclusion. Sadly, the actions of King Augustus only served to worsen the struggle. An excerpt from Our Nobility, Our Nobleman, A Treatise on Government by Christian Jacobs. The fluence of a king is not wholly unlike that of a star. Outside his galaxy, he's of little import, a bright spot to be recorded and ignored by all but the cartographers. Within his local system, he's a constant companion, a watchful eye who is always above pulling common men in with his power and gravity. He is seen as the pinnacle of life, light, and hope. But the closer one gets, the more one notices that this power is distributed evenly to all men, without regard for station. He cannot change one man, but that he sway all others in the action. As such, his power is constant, unchanging, and ultimately uncontrolled. He is, therefore, not a leader, but a servant of the power. And once that power is exhausted, his blackness takes in all those around him and destroys all who followed him. Sir Jasper Ripley, Chief of Staff to King Richard I.
Dizzy sat near the window to watch as the hopper descended on Flint. The town was much larger and more sprawling than Dizzy had expected, and also more gray. The smog of industry hung around long after the factories and commerce were boarded up. As the hopper touched down, Dizzy heard Scepter's voice in his mind, A king is never without his crown in public. Dizzy nodded and grabbed at the bracelet. As Wendy turned to face him, he paused, fearing she would see the transformation. She just shook her head. I am constantly impressed by that thing. Cadvin had it made special, I believe, just to make the sigil more portable. If you turn it one way, it's a brooch. Turn it the other way, it's a crown. He would never show us the secret. As the crown unfolded, Dizzy grinned at her. Beginner's luck, I guess. A line of guards bordered the metal staircase, and as they descended, they met the Duke of Flint. He bowed low. My liege, it is an honor to meet you. I was so distraught over the news of your brother. Dizzy had extended a hand to the Duke, but dropped it back by his side as he realized the Duke was busy bowing and scraping. Instead, he put his hands behind his back. Yes, it was tragic. He was so young. The Duke nodded and bowed again. So young and so strong, so full of life. The whole city is in mourning. Dizzy looked around at the gray hangar. A small contingent of nobility waited near the Velos, too nervous to approach him directly. Dizzy was guided over to them and introduced to each. He walked the line and shook hands, nodding to each nobleman. A marching band played the national anthem three times while they talked, making it nearly impossible for Dizzy to hear any of their names. The Duke was still talking. We mourn him still. Without every breath, the name Cadvin is a choked sob. Dizzy shouted over the music. Where are all the people? The Duke smiled. I'm sorry, sir? The people from the town. Where are all the town folk? The Duke stood up, his grief forgotten. You mean the commoners, sir? Oh, well, I've arranged it so that our tour today will keep us from being distracted by any base riffraff. We so rarely get a royal visit. It should be a travesty to mar it with the presence of... Get me a family, the Duke frowned. I'm sorry, sir? Find a family. No, two or three of them. And find a reporter. By the time we get out of those velos, I want you to have found three average families and a member of the press. Dizzy turned to face the security lead. Do we have a problem with that? The head of the guards stood one pace back, looking at everything except for Dizzy. He was easily twice the size of Dizzy, with serious, piercing eyes that seemed to take in everything. When he was asked directly, he nodded. Let my people see them first. I'll want scans and basic backgrounds, but we can do it. Dizzy held an upraised palm to the Duke. There, the scary man says we can do it. This is your town. I'm sure you can find a few ordinary families and have them meet us at the factory. The Duke bowed again. It will be my distinct honor to handle this for you personally, my liege. Dizzy climbed into the closest X-10 Velo, followed by Wendy, two security officers, the Duke, and four sycophants. Dizzy sat in the sofa in the back, and everyone else took seats opposite him. He sighed. Oh, yes, this will be a fun day. As the Velos pulled up outside a huge factory, Dizzy saw the tableau set for him. Three sets of people, each with one father, one mother, and one child, all dressed in the nicest clothes the commoner could afford. Dizzy climbed out of the velo and regarded one of the fathers. He was very likely wearing his church clothes. On a Tuesday, to the factory, Dizzy shook his head. The families were all scrubbed and frightened. The fathers all stood with their hands resting protectively on the children's shoulders. Dizzy couldn't tell whether they meant to protect the children from the foreman or to remind the children not to say a word out of place. A young man was standing next to them, holding a camera by his side. He just openly gaped at Dizzy, unable to believe what he was seeing. His hands fumbled as he brought up his camera to take the new king's first public photos. His hands moved slowly, as though worried that any sudden movements might break the spell and get him arrested. Dizzy walked up to the first family. Good morning. How are you doing? He smiled, trying to look as non-threatening as possible. 
The mother looked at the father, and the father looked at the foreman. The foreman cleared his throat noisily. Hastings, the king just asked you a direct question. Fine! The man almost sped out. All dandy, yes, yeah, your grace. He made an attempt at a bow, but clearly had no idea how it was to be done. What he did looked more like the kind of parody one would see in a comedy vid. Well, that's good. I hope that... Loving the life here, no mistake. You'll vidy no trouble from this quarter, sir. No, sir. The man seemed to realize he was babbling before he realized that he just interrupted the king. He closed his mouth with a snap, his face turning red. Dizzy wanted to tell him to calm down. He wanted to console the man and say that he was just like them. But he could tell they wouldn't listen. He could tell they wouldn't believe him if they did hear it. He reached out a hand to the father, who took it quickly enough, but had barely any grip. Dizzy sighed and looked at the other two families. One of them had a child with a shock of red hair. Dizzy almost laughed at that. They tried so hard. He turned to one of the other families. There was a child, a little girl in a white and black dress two sizes too big for her. She had shiny plastic shoes with a buckle on each and white stockings. While her parents were starkly afraid, she seemed jubilant just to be able to dress up. Dizzy said, Come here, child. He knew asking politely would only confuse them, and sure enough, the father practically pushed her over to him. Dizzy knelt in front of her to put them at eye level. He asked, What is your name? Cindy. The child was clearly fighting between her instructions to be quiet and her need to answer authority. Dizzy nodded and gestured at all the noblemen, the families, Wendy, and the Duke. Do you know what these people call me? She blinked at him, looking for the trick question. King? Dizzy puffed up his chest in mock pomposity. They must refer to his royal presence as King Augustus III. Then he leaned in and said in a low voice, But I have a secret name as well. Nobody here knows it. Can you keep that secret? The girl's eyes were wide as saucers as she nodded vigorously. He said, You see, when I was a child, I loved to spin. I would just throw my arms out and run in circles, spinning around and around and around until I couldn't stay up anymore and fell splat. He clapped his palms together. Do you ever do that, Cindy? The girl grinned as she nodded. Dizzy continued, I would spin until I fell down, and when the world stopped spinning around me, I would get back up and I'd do it again. My mother couldn't believe it, but she said, If you keep doing that, you'll make yourself dizzy. He leaned back and said, I told her, I already am dizzy. And so I was. From that day on, she called me Dizzy. And when other people met me, they thought that was my real name. For years, I called myself Dizzy. And now, he leaned in again, now that you know my secret, you can call me Dizzy, too. The little girl beamed as a voice called out from behind her. Her father said, Wouldn't dream of it, your greatness. We're proper folk in Flint, and we show specs same as any, better than most. Dizzy looked up at the girl's father and said in a flat tone, She can call me Dizzy. The man blanched. I, well, as you say. Dizzy picked up the little girl in his arms and said, Now, why don't you show me around where Daddy works? She beamed. Daddy works in the factory with the rest of us. We make slime. Dizzy blinked for a moment, then cursed himself for a fool. Too much time with the lower nobility. Dizzy had been looking at the rich for so long, he'd forgot just how poor the poor were. In a soft voice, he said, Well, why don't you show me where you make slime? The duke stepped in. Actually, my liege, the foreman has already prepared an extensive tour of the facility, engineered to give you the best overview of the process. Dizzy nodded. I see. He put the child down, then offered to hold her hand. Would you like to go with me, Cindy? The little girl took his hand and began to stride in front of him, fearlessly leading the silly adult. Dizzy heard a snicker from behind, but Wendy recovered by the time he turned to face her. She held one hand over her mouth for a moment, then said, My liege will have only the best guides, it seems.
The foreman led Dizzy through the upstairs offices first, showing him the general sales records, recent profit improvement, and prospectus on future development. Algae was a staple, he said, upon which all food is built. If you got algae, you got food. Cindy nodded and said to herself, You've got slime. The foreman frowned slightly. Uh, well, as you know, algae is a prime source, not only for food, but pollution control, fertilizer, and energy production. Dizzy raised one eyebrow. Energy production? Algae is one of the most energy-efficient forms of biomass, Your Majesty. He led them to the back of the office, where large bay windows showed the sprawling factory floor beneath. The factory floor was actually an outdoor area with shallow trenches, each 50 feet wide and a mile long. As you can see, we engineer several different types of algae to fit the needs of both the culinary artisan and the corporate consumer. Each of the shallow trenches was filled with a different colored liquid. People waded through the water, stirring up some areas and sifting out material from others. The people working the lanes wore scraps and rags over their tanned, leathery skin. A few wore hats, while others worked shirtless and sweating. A few were passed out in the lanes between the trenches, their arms thrown over their faces. Dizzy hadn't even noticed what kind of day it was. He'd been inside the entire time, environmentally protected from the moment he woke up. Looking at the people wading through the trenches, he could see that this was a brutal summer, a terrible time to be working outside. Dizzy pointed at them. What are they doing? Ah, well, spores need a form of current to spread, but once spread, they grow faster if they're given a chance to stagnate. Because of that, we can't keep a current running all the time, he smiled proudly. There's a bit of an art to it, Your Grace, and I'm proud to say that we're one of the best. Dizzy pointed at one of the people in the lane, a little old man curled into a ball. What about that man there? The foreman frowned. That, uh, sir, we have to give them breaks sometime. I, I'll have him seen to. No, that's all right. But it was too late. The foreman had a calm out and was whispering into it. A few seconds later, a man in company slacks and short sleeves walked out onto the lane and rousted the worker. The old man stood up slowly, waving his arms in indignation. He was shirtless and tanned, with legs stained purple below the knees. From so far above, behind glass, they couldn't hear the old man's protests. They couldn't hear the enforcer shout, but they saw him jab a finger at the old man and point at the trench next to them. The old man reluctantly picked up his stick and stepped back into the trenches. He looked up at the office, and Dizzy wondered whether he could see them. Dizzy found it hard to speak. That was not necessary. We run a tight ship, sir. I'm sorry you had to see that. I assure you, it is not policy. Dizzy looked out at the trenches and saw children Cindy's age out there. He thought about her pretty dress and wondered if she wore stockings to cover purple legs. He closed his eyes and took a deep breath. Let's move on. The remainder of the tour was rather pedestrian to Dizzy's eyes. One type of slime looked the same to him as another. Some were chunky, some were viscous, some were brightly colored. But little Cindy at his side went on and on, pointing things out when the foreman paused for breath. Every time they came up to a trench, she would plunge her free hand into it and offer Dizzy a sample. Her parents stepped up every time to clean her hand off, sanitize it, and apologize for the behavior. Dizzy didn't mind, though. He could tell this was her world. She lived most of her life here, and she was proud to show it to a new person. A lump rose in his throat when he realized that she was actually happy here, with no concept of the schooling or play that she was missing. He ran through scenarios in his head, ways to help the child. He couldn't very well just take her with him back to the palace. Stealing commoners was exactly the kind of image he did not want to cultivate. And it wouldn't really solve anything because he knew that Cindy was only one of many. How many? Thousands? In the end, Dizzy decided that all he could do was change the system. He could change by decree those things that he couldn't change by direct action. He would talk to Dunham and see what the process was. He would declare minimum working ages or daycare centers or something. When the tour ended, he shook the foreman's hand and thanked him. 
Then he bowed to shake Cindy's hand and smiled at her. You've been very helpful and kind. You are a delight to follow. Without moving his head, Dizzy looked pointedly at the foreman. I'm sure you and the other families will be rewarded for your kind service to me and for taking time from your efforts. As he walked away, Wendy snaked an arm into his. She whispered, That could have been handled better. Dizzy frowned. What could? Talking to her like an equal. Dizzy cocked an eyebrow, but she stopped him. Don't look at me like that. I'm not Aster, but you're going to have to start acting like a king. She sighed. Honestly, I don't know where they brought you up. Were you surrounded by commoners in that wherever they were keeping you? Dizzy sighed. Yes and no. I've met... I've known many different types of people. He turned to look at her. That makes it harder. I mean, when you know how different people are, it's harder to think that one is better than another. Her lips pursed as she thought about that. Oh, that's odd. It would seem to me that the more differences you find, the more different ways one person could be better than another. They got back into the velos, and Dizzy asked the Duke, Where are we off to now? The Duke fairly burbled with feigned delight. Now, Your Majesty, we are going to the game. Dizzy opened his mouth to speak, but an ear-splitting horn cut him off. They all turned to look back at the factory. Wendy was the first to ask, What was that? The Duke's face was a mask of contrition. I'm terribly sorry, Your Grace. That wasn't supposed to happen until after we'd left. Yes, Dizzy asked, but what was it? That was the whistle, he shrugged. It blows at the end of each day to tell the workers when to go home. Dizzy thought for a moment of the old man who'd just been browbeaten into going back to work. The Duke was nearly bouncing in his seat. We're letting everyone out early today for the game. The velos pulled away, skimming over the pocked and cracked terrain. Oh, is it that big an event for the people? The Duke held his palms up in a shrug. Well, you are playing for Flint, after all. Oh, of course, Dizzy hadn't realized. When he went to this game, he wasn't just representing the nation, but also their hometown as the venue of choice. Wendy put a hand on his knee. Don't worry about the game. We had experts brought in to help. Dizzy raised an eyebrow. Help with what? Your game. You are the king. We can't let you lose. Dizzy looked at her, then over at the Duke, who smiled along. He frowned. I think I'm a bit offended. Do you think I've never played circus before? The Duke's eyes bulged. Of course not, my liege. It's just that, with so much on the line, we thought it was a good idea to play the best game possible. Dizzy wondered about that. Perhaps they were worried about the war. If the Americas looked bad in front of an enemy, it could be embarrassing to the troops. Still, they wouldn't have sent him out with no idea of the consequences if this were a tactically important move. Dunham would have insisted on coming out here himself, or sending one of General Ellis's tacticians to help him. Dizzy leaned back in the plush seat. No, this was just the pride of a small township wanting to do their best before a foreign power. He shrugged. Well, I don't suppose there's any harm in listening to an expert's advice. Most of Flint had been very gray and dull, so the bright colors of the stadium stood out as they neared. It was a huge dome with spotlights on the inside that shone through the translucent ceiling. Long banners hung in regular intervals across the ceiling. The parking alone took up a city block, and every entrance had a half-dozen guards. As they came up to it, Dizzy saw the name, Cadvan Memorial Stadium. It was written in huge golden letters that could be seen for half a mile. Dizzy looked at the Duke and pointed at the name. That's very thoughtful. He couldn't help but notice that the word memorial was in a slightly different font, as though it had been added only recently. The Duke bowed his head. It is such a loss. The people were all looking forward to seeing him play. Dizzy nodded. What was its name before? The Duke blinked at him. Before what? What was the stadium called before you changed it to Cadvin? I mean, I'm guessing you changed the name because you knew he would be coming, right? 
Oh, no, sir. We built this stadium for this game. Really? I mean, isn't that hideously expensive? Well, the Duke spread his hands and shrugged. You're playing for Flint. It seemed only right. Dizzy started to worry about the game and the overdeveloped sense of pride his people had. The Velos moved through a darkened tunnel that opened deep inside the amphitheater. Elevators took everyone up to the royal box seats, which were, obviously, set to the south of the game field. The game of circus is not entirely unlike chess. The people standing on the field represented different pieces, whose moves eliminated other pieces. In the center of the field was a single black circle. Surrounding that was a ring of white, subdivided into quarters. Around that circle was another circle of alternating black and white tiles, subdivided into eight sections. This pattern continued for two or more circles, leaving an outer ring of 32 sections. The stadium wrapped around these circles with amphitheater seating. As commoners began filtering into the lower seats, Dizzy looked around the royal suite. A buffet was already set up with the traditional hamburgers, hot dogs, popcorn, and s'mores. Dizzy grinned, trying to picture Cadvin eating this kind of snack, and he realized that Cadvin may very well have requested it. The more Dizzy thought about it, the more he realized that he didn't know much about his brother at all. He moved to the front of the box where the windows opened to the game field. Dizzy pointed outside. I thought Cadvin didn't like being around commoners. Why would he have allowed this? The Duke carefully looked away, suddenly preoccupied with other matters. Wendy just smiled. That's mirrored glass. No one can see in. He didn't mind so much if no one could see him. A small, thin man knocked at the door and entered quickly. He scanned the room and said, Your Majesty, may we go over the rules prior to the game? I take it you're the expert? I am, sir. He produced a folio and removed a thin sheet of static paper. He held the page in both hands gingerly, as though it might crumble. He handed it carefully to Dizzy, who treated it with the same reverence. The paper felt heavy and weak in his hands. His eyes wandered over it, waiting for the information to shift or update in some way, looking for a clock on the page. After a moment, he realized that it was true paper, not a data sheet. The ornate calligraphy of the writing was masterful and clean. The paper stated that one, John Nathan Pritchard, had attained the rank of Grand Master some three years earlier. Dizzy almost whispered, This is amazing. The man took it back from him carefully. Thank you, Your Majesty. It has taken me a lifetime to achieve. Dizzy wasn't entirely sure if he had been referring to the document or the paper it had been written on, but he was impressed nonetheless. Dizzy smiled at him. Now, I hope you'll understand that, and I mean this with the greatest possible respect, you are an advisor here. I'm the one who'll be doing the actual playing. The color drained from the expert's face. Of course, sir. I would recommend we begin with strategy as soon as possible, then. A porter opened the door. My liege, the Belgian delegation has arrived. Dizzy nodded. Very well. He turned to face Wendy. I take it we're expected to welcome him and such? She nodded. He should be given the full diplomatic treatment, yes? Dizzy pointed out the window. Porter, I want that man to join us. They all turned and looked out the window. A family was just sitting down, preparing for the game. The mother was laden with foam decorations, while the father was holding concessions and watching the two boys. The father wore faded fatigues and struggled with the concessions in one prosthetic hand. The duke interceded. Ah, your majesty, I was not aware that you were familiar with any of the commoners in our fair city. Dizzy shook his head. I don't know the man personally. I just want him there. He turned back to the porter. Can you do that? Ask that man to join us on the Circle of Flame and tell the Belgian delegation that we'll meet them there. Yes, your majesty. The porter closed the door with a snap. Wendy frowned, squinting at the father with the hand shielding her eyes from the sun. Who is that? Mr. Pritchard replied, He's a soldier. Everyone but Dizzy turned to face him. The expert looked at Dizzy with a raised eyebrow. The man's a veteran, clearly. The king wants someone there representing the fighting men in this war so that he can bring a personal face to the game. 
Dizzy didn't reply, so Mr. Pritchard continued. That puts the Prime Minister on defense from the beginning. Given that he wasn't expecting this to turn ugly or personal, he paused, then addressed Dizzy directly. An obvious move, but one which costs us nothing and puts the enemy on the defensive. Gives him the mistaken impression that we are coarse and obvious in our strategy. A fine move, Your Majesty. Dizzy frowned at the mirrored glass, his back to all of them. It sounded well and good when the Grandmaster Pritchard said it, but Dizzy knew what it was. Using a man's sacrifice as a gambling chip. A fine move it may be, but it tasted like dirt. He took a deep breath and said, Let's go. As they left the box, Wendy watched the porter standing in the bleachers, explaining everything to the very confused-looking veteran. When they reached the ground floor, in the tunnel outside the play area, Dizzy saw the soldier standing uncomfortably. Dizzy walked over to him, hand outstretched, then stopped as the man shot up into a rigid salute. He came to attention as soon as he saw Dizzy, his artificial right hand snapping up to a straight line at his eyebrow. Up close, Dizzy was surprised at the size of the man. He was easily seven feet tall and three feet wide at the shoulders. Underneath the baggy jacket, the man showed none of the casual fat that Dizzy had come to expect from most Americans. Dizzy decided against shaking hands when he saw the salute. Ah, well, I take it introductions are unnecessary. The soldier stood still, looking forward. After a moment, Dizzy realized what he was waiting for. He raised his own hand in salute, hoping he was doing it right. The veteran dropped his hand to his side and remained staring straight ahead. Um, so... The rigid discipline of this man completely shook Dizzy's composure. He thought for a moment, then said... Oh, I'm sorry, uh, as you were? The soldier looked at him from the side of the eye, then slid one foot out. He put his hands behind his back and stood with his feet shoulder-length apart. From Dizzy's perspective, he didn't seem any more comfortable. What's your name? Sergeant Harold T. Gideon, sir. The soldier snapped the answer out like a lash. I need you to do something for me. Sergeant Gideon didn't move. It was unnerving, and Dizzy didn't know if this was respect or not. From inside his head, Dizzy heard Scepter say, A soldier waits for either a question or an order. Dizzy blinked at the man. Just a moment ago, the man was sitting down with his family to enjoy a game, and now here he was, a pillar of strength and determination. Sergeant, have you served in Belgium? No, sir. Where did you serve? Havana, Berlin, Nome, and Paris. Dizzy nodded. Well, that's damned impressive, really. Thank you. The soldier didn't respond. It occurred to Dizzy that he'd met robots who were less disciplined than this man. He said, Do you know anyone fighting in Belgium? The soldier said, Yes, sir. I have friends who transferred last month to the 102nd. Right. Good. Well, you know what this game today is about, don't you? Yes, sir. You're playing for Flint against the Belgian Prime Minister. I'm about to walk over there and shake his hand. Dizzy gave him a moment. How do you feel about that? The sergeant took his time to think about it. I think it's something you have to do when you're talking diplomacy. Dizzy nodded and looked up at the seven-foot-tall man. I'd like to have you standing with me when I do. I'd like for you to stand as an example of how angry, dedicated, and disciplined we are. How do you feel about that? I am glad to serve my king. They were words he'd heard before, but Dizzy could hear a note of... I am glad to serve my king. Those are words he'd heard before, but Dizzy could hear a note of humor in them. Dizzy nodded. He would do fine. Dizzy walked out onto the field at the same time as the prime minister. They both had a small entourage following them as they walked out to the circle in the middle of the field. They shook hands, and the Prime Minister said, It is a lovely day for a game. It is. I'm very glad we have this opportunity. The Prime Minister nodded, then looked up at Sergeant Gideon. You bring a bodyguard out here to meet? Dizzy didn't look at the soldier. No, Sergeant Gideon is one of our fighting men, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to meet you. Is that a threat? Only if you're afraid of meeting people. He looked around them at the circle they were standing in. Ironic, isn't it? You and I standing in the center circle? 
Yes, two flames standing in the most contested area, where the wars are won. He looked back at the soldier. But the lances start further out. Dizzy shrugged. Our lances move quickly. He grinned at the leader. Good luck. The prime minister nodded, frowning. And to you. They both left the field and returned to their boxes. When he reached his box, Dizzy was surprised to see it almost full. Two new groups had joined them in the royal suite. One group of sycophants surrounded a tall, thin, aquiline man with a long, sharp nose. He had bird's eyes, and they fixed on Dizzy as soon as he walked through the door. The other group surrounded a small, wrinkled man who sat in a seat next to the king's. He held a cane between his knees and rested his chin on it, frowning at the field outside. Dizzy walked over to the tall, thin man, recognizing him by his features. Lord Atherton, it's a pleasure to see you here. The lord took his outstretched hand in a friendly shake. He was dressed in a long, pleated robe, covering a vibrant, ruffled suit. The lord smiled imperiously. I'm sure it is. Dizzy grinned at him. I don't think I've seen you since you questioned my sovereignty in public. The lord's grip loosened, but Dizzy didn't let him out of the shake. How's that going, by the way? The lord's smile froze, but did not disappear. Well, the safety of the realm is everyone's business, of course. That goal is sometimes vague, and patriots are required to stand for what they believe is correct at the moment. So, patriotism calls for one to change their allegiance? Of course not. Patriotism requires that men stand up for the safety of the nation. So it's patriotism that leads you to depose a king. Dizzy finally let go of his hand. Lord Atherton stood for a long moment, looking down his nose at Dizzy. He said, Understand this. If you are validated, mine shall be the loudest voice in support. Until then, I will remain true to my understanding of the law. Dizzy nodded, still grinning. Your Majesty. The Lord's eyes shot open. I beg your pardon? Your Majesty, or Your Grace, my liege, Your Highness, or else you may just call me King Augustus. Dizzy waited. The Lord glared at him, and as others turned, noting the tension between the two, he began to redden. Dizzy, meanwhile, continued smiling and waiting. After a moment, the general murmur of the room died down, and everyone turned to watch them. The Lord's eyes flicked left and right as his face reddened, but Dizzy did not move. Eventually, Lord Atherton said in a low voice, I will remain true to my understanding of the law, your majesty. Dizzy nodded. Thank you. Of course, I support the law implicitly, as I am the maker and enforcer of all laws. He took a step back from the Lord. It was a pleasure meeting you, my Lord. You remind me so much of your son, Aster. As Dizzy turned to face the group, Wendy caught his eye. She covered her mouth with one hand, but couldn't hide the smile. Dizzy rolled his eyes and whispered, The apple doesn't fall far, does it?